We are continuing our series through the two letters to the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, uh, First and Second Thessalonians. We've been in this series for a few weeks, and um, we're we're now in the second book. So don't miss it. Uh, you can head on over there now to Second Thessalonians. I'll go ahead and read this um, this scripture for us this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in all his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a few weeks ago in this series, Gray uh, was talking about the rapture. If you're familiar with that, you can go, if you're not familiar with that, you can go back and listen to that message, but he started by saying, I want to address an elephant in the room that we all know is here. And as we've been working through this series about the end times, there have been a number of elephants that have walked in and out of the door, maybe some things that we don't even want to discuss. So just to name the the elephant in the room this morning, as you just heard in this passage, the Bible speaks to us about the subject of hell and of the eternal judgment of God this morning. And if I'm being honest, I would not have chosen this passage to preach this morning. It is a very hard passage. I'm a young pastor. I don't know if I have the, well, I'm here. But uh, (laughs) um, there's been a, a, a plea to the Lord for a maturity and a grace in this passage even as we look at God's Word this morning. Because we are very, I think rightly so in some ways, conflicted about the judgment of God. When we consider God as a judge, it causes conflict within us. We're not quite sure what to make of that or how that shakes out. Maybe we think of a God of peace or a God of order or a God of strength. That is... That is uh, unanimous approval rating, but this God that the Scriptures so often claim will bring a final judgment on the earth causes anxiety 
and conflict within us. And I think, I think there's a couple reasons for that. If I could just draw out three quickly. Three reasons we often feel conflict about the judgment of God is we see the nature of the world, we see the suffering and the injustice that goes unaddressed decade after decade, and we, we long for a, a judge, a righteous judge, to set it right. And yet, in that tension, we look at our own hearts and we see that often we ourselves are perpetrators of injustice. So what would that mean? For a God who would judge justly, what would that mean for me? That's one tension here. A second tension we might feel or a conflict with the judgment of God is just simply the what-ifs. When we consider eternity, matters of, of heaven and hell, and we, the what-ifs, the how-longs, the quantity, the quality, all of those qualifying particular hypothetical questions that float to our mind, it's not wrong to ask those questions, but they can kind of start to cloud the framework for us. I think of Abraham pleading with God before God said, I'm going to just destroy these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, please, if there's 50, 50 righteous, would you save it? And he gets all the way down to one. If there's, if there's one righteous, would you save it? Don't we often feel that way in front of the judgment of God? Like, could I hold this back? Is there, is there, is there some sort of um, uh, co- uh, concession that we could make here? That's a conflict. And finally, I think we're conflicted about the judgment of God simply because we have more questions than answers. We have clear reading in the scriptures, and we'll hear this morning of this eternity set before us, and God as a judge, and yet we're not always sure what What's symbolic here? What's, what's real? What's, what am I supposed to really understand here? I mean, someone I read this, this week was saying, you know, if you think about it to our nature, thinking about hell, if you think about often as we think about it, lots of fire, and yet the, the scriptures describe it that way, and yet it also describes it as a place of darkness. And as we know it, those two things would be mutually exclusive, would they not? So how do we play with this understanding of what the scriptures are teaching us what, is, what, what can I take literally, and what is, we are treading on matters so far beyond our own understanding, of course, that we want to come humbly before God and receive it, but it does cause conflict within us. Well, we'll address all of these conflicts this morning um, insofar as much they're spoken to this passage, but I think behind all of these tensions, the tensions and the questions really comes down to a question behind all of them. And the question behind the question is, what is God like? I mean, that's why we're asking these what-ifs, and we're concerned we don't know about the judgment of God and how that would play out, because we want to know, what is God like? Who is God? Is He, a trust, is he trustworthy in the sense to bring about this judgment? Does he understand the full components? Can he forgive? Can he fix this world? Can he fix me? You see, it's the character of God that's going to define our understanding of eternity and how we look at it 
more than sorting through all the questions of what's beyond our understanding right now. It's coming back and being rooted in the character of God as a righteous judge. That's going to offer the comfort. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. As Paul is writing this to the church, and we believe is the living word of God for us today, this church is seeking comfort in affliction, and Paul goes right for the final judgment of God as a comfort for them. How can that be? How can that be? And yet, that is what happens here. Though I've titled this sermon, um, Who's Going to Walk Through the Door? Uh, Because as I was working through this passage, a memory kept coming back, and some of you will share this memory of being a child and my parents taking an anniversary trip and leaving us at a friend's house for a few days. Dear friends, close friends, uh, uh, some boys my age, We had a great time the first, second, and couple days, but the longer that trip drags on, the worse your perspective of staying at this, even this friend's house seems to be, right? We wake up in the morning, and there's breakfast, but they cook the eggs weird. They let the yolk be runny in the hard-boiled eggs, and I cracked it as, what is this? What, you forget to cook this? The eggs are strange, and in the afternoons, it's hot, it's humid, but we're not allowed to watch a movie. We have to go back outside. Ah, that's frustrating. Mom would have let me watch a movie. And then my own bed at night. Could I get off this cot and get back in my own bed? How long will this anniversary trip last? And the question we're asking as kids as that day draws near and the front door is opening, the screen door in the south, and you hear, is that a neighbor dropping someone off? Who's going to walk through that door? Is it finally going to be mom and dad to take me back to where everything is right, where the eggs are right and the the bed is right and set everything right that I've been waiting for? Who is going to walk through that door? And that becomes the fundamental question that will answer the the fallout of what will follow that. And don't we have so many, so many opportunities to look around at our world and ourselves and just say, who's going to fix this? Who's going to walk through the door and make this right? I hope you see that this morning God's judgment is a comfort and an answer to that question. An answer to that question. And so, Here is how God's judgment is good news. It's good news. It's a comfort to us. It can be. It can be if we hear it as the the Scripture describes it today. The first way that God's judgment is good news is it will bring relief for the afflicted. God's judgment will bring relief for the afflicted. This Scripture passage, as this book opened, opened a very typical way, the same way the first letter to Thessalonians opened, an introduction, and then Paul commending them for their growth in love and and faith. But then we get this bizarre statement dropped down into the fifth verse, right after in verse 4 when he says, in all your persecutions, so I'm in verse 4, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, what? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. How can this be? How can this church that is is growing in faith and love and and essentially peerless among other churches, as Paul says, we're, we're actually boasting about you to other churches, how can this church's affliction be a rational evidence for the righteous judgment of God? How can that be? 
It seems contrary to the fact. It seems like it would be evidence for the opposite. We received a hospital bill for a full year after we had paid it, after the birth of one of our children. Every month the bill would come in the mail, a very large sum that had been paid, and it was driving me crazy to open up the mail and see this bill and call the billing department and say, haven't you sorted, like, we paid this, we, and yes, you see on your end, then why is this happening? Is this what the church is going through? Is this a mistake in the divine billing department where they are being issued a, a sum of affliction that should be taken away because they're people of God and they're proving it again and again? Well, as though it appears evidence to the opposite, that God's judgment is faulty or wrong, and how often do we have a friend or someone in our family or even ourselves who looks at the suffering of the weak and the, how, how wicked seems to just flourish in this world and say, God's judgment, there's something off here. There's something not right. This is evidence that God's judgment isn't good. How often is that the case, that we feel that way? I mean, it's even said in Psalm 73, for those of you who have heard this psalm, listen to these words of the psalmist. He says, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. That's a very real thought in that psalm, isn't it? Does someone say, spiritually, I almost fell on my face because I'm looking at the wicked and they're great and I'm looking at the righteous and they're in bad shape and I'm not sure what to make of this judgment of God. But here in verse 5, the Bible does something so interesting by drawing attention to this suffering as evidence of God's judgment of his not only his just judgment that's happening, a righteous, a right judgment. Because here is what it is saying. It is saying that just as much as injustice is happening right now and affliction is happening, so much more so will the God who created this world and gave you the desire for justice bring this all right in the end. Let me introduce you to the God who will make this right. It's completely flipping the argument to say, you're not crazy for seeing this injustice You have a craving, a desire for justice, and let me introduce you to the God who will certainly, on no uncertain terms, bring justice to bear. And as he says in verse 7, and grant relief to those who are afflicted. That is the church, the people of God, who are afflicted in this ruined world. And you might say, it's kind of convenient for Paul to say this. I don't necessarily follow the argument. It seems circular to say the suffering is evidence that the suffering will end. But, but the, what's so often argued in the other way is that the suffering is evidence that God does not exist, that he will not bring a righteous judgment. But I'm not saying that's not convincing. I'm just saying look closely at that. Essentially what, what that's doing is denying our human innate plea for justice, kind of rendering that as like, where does that go? And it removes the judge at the end. And it doesn't give an answer here. The scriptures say, God's people, as they cry out for justice and persevere through affliction, are only giving evidence that the Lord is faithful and he will return and bring relief 
relief for his people. And this is is a powerfully comforting thought because it shows that God is taking our affliction very seriously. That he is storing up for a day of vengeance that will happen, but even now, he is taking it seriously. And he is enabling us to persevere through that. And our persevering through the affliction, that is evidence that he will bring a righteous judgment and relief. So many of you have seen that the Lord of the Rings movies, the second one kind of centers around this battle in this, along this mountain where all the good guys are trapped and those orcs, whew, they're even worse in that new Amazon series. I have to look away watching that. They're scary. These orcs, this is back in the early 2000s. They weren't as good. They're fighting this there's a scene where they're, they're, there's a kingdom backed up against a wall, and it's been this long battle. I mean, this is kind of a dude's movie. Like, it is so just dark swords swinging, right, the whole time. And you're losing hope. You're watching these, these people. You're like, every, every inch that they've tried to defend is now lost. What's going to happen? And then you hear the words of the wizard say, they remember what he told them. He told them, Look to my coming at the light that is the dawn of the fifth day and look over to the east. And they look up at the window and the light starts to come in. The first light you've seen in maybe two hours, that movie's so long. I mean, wow, there's light again. <laughs> and, and this is the return and all, all the good guys then on the horses. I'm describing this broadly. I think I'm doing a worse job of describing this by not being specific Light triumphs over darkness, and the the good that seemed trapped against the wall with nowhere to go, it is actually the evil that is now trapped in the middle for the dawning of the light. There was a promise of a righteous judgment to befall the wicked that kept hope alive and even said, you're fighting now, keep fighting. You're fighting onward as evidence. Look to the fifth day when he will return, when Gandalf will come back. How we as the church recognize that we are sometimes feel like we're against the wall and in darkness. The light is coming. The relief is coming. And the suffering we're enduring now is mounting evidence that the righteous judge, when he returns, will bring relief for his people. That's the first way in which we see that God's judgment is good, that it brings a relief for his people. But there is a flip side to this coin that is difficult to discuss. And that is the next, the next point, that, that God will bring a repayment on the afflictor. There is a relief for the afflicted, and yet there is a repayment to the afflictor. And this is the flip side of the coin of justice. This is how justice and judgment always works. And this is where we have a clear reference to, at the very least, the concept of what we would call hell. In verse 9, they will suffer a punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Much has been said about the nature of hell, and all I will say for this passage, I'll say more in a moment, but all I will say for that verse is that um, that, that, word, that word for eternal doesn't have a lot of fudge room on it. There's different concepts of hell that have been orthodox throughout the 
um, throughout the history of Christianity, but this same word is used to describe God as an eternal being, as something that just kind of perpetually goes on, of course. And then the key text for this, just looking at this, trying to um, anticipate some questions here, there's a time in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus is talking about the final judgment when the Son of Man will return and judge the world. And he uses this same word, eternal, eternal, um, the, the wicked going to an eternal punishment and the righteous going into eternal life. Why do I say this? I simply say this to say that the Scriptures seem to weight the concept of hell as kind of the inverse of heaven in that there is an eternal dimension to both that goes on and we cannot subtract what, what is given to us here in this word and w- without uh, subtracting what our view of heaven would be because they are both given the same classification as an eternal, uh, as an eternal thing that goes onward. And again, please offer me grace this morning as I'm not able to um, anticipate every question that might pop up. We, this can be an ongoing thing, but for the purposes of this text, what it is saying to us this morning is when Christ returns and brings a righteous judgment, there will be an eternal punishment here on the line. And, and um, t- Tim Keller, writing on, writing on hell, pointed out that that Jesus himself spoke about it more often than anyone else. And <laughs> And so we should take it seriously as a warning from the scriptures. But the reality is often this idea, this idea of a concept of hell or as we have here in eternal destruction seems strange to our minds, like implausible, that, like unfair for an infinite punishment for those who over a window of time refuse to accept the gospel. I've heard it said someone's around for, maybe they sadly die as a teenager and, and in that 17-year window or whatever, they did not have time to accept the gospel. Are we really saying there's an infinite punishment for them? That's a hard question to answer. We don't know the answer to that question. We don't know their heart. We don't know. We are not the judge. God is the judge of that. But look at what this text is drawing out in the big picture. As we zoom out and we see the big picture of what's happening here. What, what do we see? We see that... Um, in verse 8, when Christ is re- revealed in a flaming fire inflicting vengeance, on who? On those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So what we have is a, a category who has, who has rejected God, who has desired not to know God, who has not desired His presence and so what is it saying? It's saying they're, they're cast away from that very thing. They're cast away from the presence. In verse 10, he's glorified by the saints. They're in his presence, marveling at him. But in verse 9, the eternal destruction has strongly to do with being sent away from the presence of the Lord. Oh, good. So there is a, there's a case in this verse. This verse is saying that there, there is a, there, people have been 
these people have been given over to what they desired. They did not desire the presence of God, and so to that they have been given. Here, a little bit of a broader stream here um, from theologian J.I. Packer, who says, Scripture sees hell, hell as self-chosen. Okay, I would see that strongly here in this verse. That's what it seems to be saying. Didn't desire the presence of God, and so that is what's given. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. One more quote from C.S. Lewis, and then one more coming later. Uh, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires, who desires joy will ever miss it. And those who seek, find, and those who knock, it is opened. Okay, let's put those slides away. So, um, this is an extremely hard teaching. I'm sharing quotes because I'm trying to show quickly a broader view, an understanding of this, and how the scriptures take this seriously, and how they hold this accountable, and how they draw this out. There's, there's, a, there's a saying that's come up um, a few times where... Hell in isolation seems just, you could go crazy looking at it and trying to figure out how that works. But in the bigger picture, what we want to say about the scriptures is that the fairy tale is true, okay? Not every part of it, but broadly speaking, let me tell you what I mean. The fairy tale is true. The good king returns in his glory bringing vengeance on those who have afflicted, and the darkness flees to the outer edges. In a, in a fairy tale, that's what happens, right? The good king returns, the citizens rejoice, and there's going to be peace in the kingdom as long as those who, do, who reject the king, who do not want his reign, who do not want his rule, they have to be removed from the kingdom for any peace. And that, the scriptures say, is the time when this final justice will walk through the door. For what would good be if it did not eradicate evil? Moreover, th those who are rejecting good itself by rejecting God. Sometimes truth, as the scriptures teaches, or truth in our own life, feels like the warm blanket we curled under last night when Phoenix finally dropped 20 degrees before our eyes. But other times, truth feels like a car jack. It's just like getting cranked and pushing a car up and pushing against the pavements, hard, metal, and yet we need both. We need a truth that will lift the reality that we face, the hard reality that we face, and we need a truth that comforts us. And this truth does comfort us because it speaks to a God who will bring to restoration his kingdom and eradicate evil, but it is a hard truth. It is not easy. I mean, is there, honestly, is there anything more difficult for us to wrap our minds around in this, in this whole scheme of things? Here's the last way that God's judgment is good news in that he brings relief to his people, he brings true justice to the earth, and he restores all things. This is the restoration of all things that will come only, only by his judgment. And I want to stay zoomed out here at the big picture. 
We've been asking through this sermon, who's going to walk through the door? Who, who is God? What is he like? That's going to define how all this goes. We have a second question that we can ask here. When we look at the reality of God's judgment, we can ask this question. Who are we? Who are we as people before God? This goes back to our earlier um, the conflict we feel about the judgment of God, how we feel like a mixed bag. We both long for peace and yet realize that we are disruptors of peace. We long for God's presence and yet realize we often reject his presence to seek our own way. We're a mixed bag made in his image and yet ruined by the fall. And so if you'll allow me, I have one more long quote from C.S. Lewis here to kind of capture. I love this quote. I think you've probably heard it before. To capture the nature of humanity in this eternal perspective, Lewis says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's talking about an eternal reality, right? To remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which... If you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life to ours is the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He's talking about people, (laughs) immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He has tapped into something so profound here. There's an intrinsic greatness of infinite trajectory within us as God's creation and bears of his image. And yet ruined by the fall, there is a capacity to become an infinite horror, even as one made in the image of God. And so we, we see this all around us. We see this the, the chaos in the world and how we are often perpetrators of it. And we can go back in our Bibles even to the third chapter of Genesis where men and women, they eat from the fruit. They sin against God. And, and what does it say? God, he's walking through the garden. He walks through the door. And, and are they walking with him as they used to? No. They are stooped. They are cowering. They are hiding after they have sinned because they are ruined. And no longer are they in the position of his protection, but they are, are under his condemnation. How is God's judgment good news even then? Because even as God is speaking over them, the consequences of sin, the thorns and the thistles, the pain and the darkness and the ruin that's starting to creep out into the world all around them, he promises that one day, one day, One will come, a Savior, who will crush the head of evil, who will step on that serpent snake. Truly, he will walk through the door and make everything right and reclaim and restore his ruined creation. 
And isn't this why Christ speaks of hell more often than, than any other biblical writer? He says, if, if, you're, if you're in sin, if you're lusting, throw your eye out. You don't want to wind up in, in hell. If you're angry at your brother and you say, you fool to your brother, your anger within you lurking, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus sees as the creator and the one who's going to step on the head of the serpent that the roots of hell are themselves within us already. And he has come to receive the judgment of God that that root might be pulled out, that evil crushed, and we who would normally flee to the outer edge of the darkness have been brought into the light and into his kingdom. God's not ignoring the reality of hell. Rather, he's satisfying the good that should have been done in Christ to bring us back to Him. And as Lewis says, into an infinite, joining God as a lowercase g, we won't really go there with that poetic language, but this infinite creature of glory as we were intended to be in the presence of God. And this is the gospel we believe, that God cannot shrug off evil. He cannot ignore it. He cannot say, this is fine. It's no big deal. I don't really need to bring justice because I understand the motive, the thing. No. This is his creation, and he's going to bring a judgment upon it, and yet in his gospel freely to all. It says God desires all to be saved. He's offered his son to take the judgment in our place. We might be right to him. And so, judgment of God, the judgment of God is good news. And church, doesn't this, this just this understanding flip our, our paradigm for how we are to be in the world, right? We think of the words of Christ. He said, bless those who persecute you. <laughs> it's so loving of him to say that. See, the, the people that are in darkness, please bless them. Don't give them another chance to reject me. I want to bring them in. Please bless them. Be the salt of the earth. Be the city on the hill. Draw people to you. Don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good because I desire that none perish. I am slow to act because I desire for all to be saved. Please, church, do not give an excuse. Of course, we understand the reality that we are held accountable to God, and there are no excuses and how God has revealed himself. And yet, hear how he calls his church. Love those in darkness as you once were. I want to bring more back to me. And I think this is why Paul closes this section, saying that to this end, we, we pray for you. In verse 11, that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Paul is telling us to continue on in the power of God, that that resolve that we fill for righteousness would be filled by the strength and power of God. It's by his power we're saved, and it's by his power that we persevere. Until the end, when it says this incredible, incredible verse, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. <laughs> Me glorified in Jesus? Yes, as the creature he intended us to be, emitting the radiance of God as, as he originally created us to be, marveling in the presence, extolling him for his might and glory, and returned to the place where we were originally meant to be as his creation. 
Let me close us in prayer. Lord, this has been a very difficult teaching. It has been hard to prepare. I'm sure it has been hard to hear. How many questions do we have about this? How many concerns? All valid, most valid. And yet we stand before you as those who have rebelled and have been brought back into your kingdom only by your grace. Please do this work of salvation even more so in our world. Restore us, O Lord, to you. Please put peace in our hearts where hard questions are. Give us answers. Give us faith. Give us assurance of your goodness and love. It's in Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen.